of of the power of the gospel. And um, I've, I was praying for for her and for for joy as well that um, that the experience of Christ that you've had will will be like seed uh, for people you know with an indigenous background and it would just be it's just appropriate isn't it we open up our hearts to more people from from the different um, ethnic groups and but also from our own indigenous first nations people it's just right that we have more of them here and so we look to God to give us a work of grace there as Graham said, um, my subject this morning is is to talk about the um, the fact that there's a, a piece of legislation that's been undergoing uh, several revisions. This is, I think, the fourth occasion. There were three draft versions um, uh, under the pr- previous Attorney General, and now under the new Attorney General, there's a, another one in the hope that this legislation will be be able to come to Parliament before the um, the next election, which is due. Um, you know, uh, late this year, early next year, and um, there's c- quite a story to this, as as you know, and um, it's a little difficult to sort of summarise it for you. But uh, just briefly, uh, the the um, back in uh, 1984, the uh, sex discrimination sex discrimination act was introduced and passed and accepted into parliament into law here, and uh, and and that act. Uh, makes it unlawful to treat a person unfairly uh, because of their sex, their gender identity, their intersex status, their sexual orientation, marital or relationship status, and at the time, in brackets, including same-sex de facto couples because the Same-Sex Marriage Act had not yet uh, occurred. And then also, uh, not just that, but also family responsibilities. So it's unlawful to discriminate against them because they have family responsibilities that might uh, pr- uh, be more important to them at the time um, uh, than their work situation or because they are pregnant or uh, try to get pregnant uh, and if they're breastfeeding. <laughs> so this law sort of took in a number of things um, and um, it was generally speaking, it was, um, uh, it was, it was very... Was um, um, for religious communities in the nation because they recognised in that religious communities had um, particular feelings about and doctrines about um, about sexuality and about the nature of family and marriage and the importance of these things, and that these things were actually fundamental to the religious character of those. Of those organisations now they're different. Obviously, uh, what Islam feels about marriage is very different from what Christians feel about marriage. And then within Christianity, there's quite a spectrum of how um, how uh, marriage is viewed. But generally, um, th- it's it's still quite traditional within the Christian community. Now, um, th- how they dealt with that, this, the fact that the this, these identity issues, these sexual identity issues, just uh, marital identity issues, important to religious communities, so which they gave in this, or that gave an exemption. When it came to the business of office bearing um, and employees, um, that uh, that these these uh, the these persons should um, um, believe and exemplify. Uh, the Christian position in respect of marriage and family. So it didn't just have to do with whether they were uh, heterosexual. It had to do with whether they were in a de facto relationship or in a, you know, 
you know, monogamous or, or, or a relationship outside of marriage or whatever, they, the, the institutions said that, it, that this law said that it was fair for religious groups to expect people to represent family and sexuality in their in their own lifestyle um, if they were to be office bearers. Well, through it was 1984 for that when legislation went through to 1984, even because they felt that r uh, religion shouldn't be treated like an exemption, you know, because that exemption also applied to people like um, sports clubs and associations that were perhaps gender specific, you know, a girls' hockey team or a, a men's football team, you know, that they shouldn't feel that they necessarily have to have a woman on their team if they were a men's team. So that was not deemed to be. A, um, uh, a, 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 a deliberate d discrimination because uh, it was clear that, 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 that these teams were functioning or these groups were functioning in a very gender-specific way. And it seemed inappropriate in a sense to treat religious exemption in the t at the s as, as equivalent to a gym membership type thing. It was, it was more important than that to religious people our religious identity our sense of faith is much more important than our gym membership type and thing and uh, <coughs> and of course we we've kind of been influenced a lot by secularism and so we tend to think that you know that faith can be a little bit of an option you know it can be a kind of something you can put in a in a pigeonhole in your mind and and in your life and 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 live most of your life as as if you're just an ordinary bloke you know type thing but that's not true for, say, uh, a, 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 a devout, devoted and practicing Muslim, for instance. A, a, a Muslim who's a pra practicing Muslim will say to his I intentional, you know, if he's applying for a job, he'll say, is there a prayer room, <laughs> you know, in your b property? And, uh, and, um, and is it okay if I break for prayer? You know, these sorts of things. And he'll put his mat down and he'll pray and, you know, Secular Australians had to sort of get used to that idea, and they kind of felt, well, oh that's all right, you know. And they didn't really feel that they necessarily had to have a law for it. Uh, but um, was the issue that came up when it came to the business of recognizing the fact that religion both believes different things and also practices different things, and that a law should cover all of that. And that's very wide, because at times. The practices are very diverse, and they sometimes conflict uh, one religious group over another. And the, you know, the, the governments have had to try to deal fairly with every different religious group in the country that wanted to be a part of this, and that's been, as you can imagine, quite a challenge for them in in making sure that that. Uh, how we understand religion and how we practice it is well catered for in a law. Now, when the uh, marriage, when the long um, um, same-sex marriage thrust to try to remove that exemption from the Sex Discrimination Act, and uh, what they did with the Same-Sex Marriage Act was they demonstrated that amendment to the Marriage Act. What they demonstrated was, in their mind, was that the nation was ready for that kind of change. So when the plebiscite went through, the very next piece of legislation that was already prepared uh, was um, to remove this, this, um, this exemption for religious groups that 
that you know same-sex marriage people or homosexuals or people in transsexuals or whatever should be able to apply for any job and they should not be discriminated against by reason of their sexuality. And that's where things were just before the last election and uh, and king the and and side is an taking of the exemptions and there was an undertaking by the other side of parliament to put in place a religious discrimination bill that catered for uh, the kind of religious issues that were now uh, it seemed under threat so that's kind of where we got to and covid interrupted that process to some degree and so we had three uh, draft editions of uh, of the Religious Discrimination Act, then COVID, and a change of Attorney General, and now we're going through the fourth. And um, and what we have learned in this process is, I as representatives of different religious groups, how complex this process is. It's an incredibly difficult process for government, and uh, it's uh, there are so many different agendas that are in in play, and uh, and. We as find, as Graham said, we we find uh, we don't particularly like the idea of us being just another lobby group that are fighting for our own rights and interests, you know. But we recognise that we're dealing with a political process here, where everybody has to kind of put everything on the table, you know, and then we try to, you know, pray for the government and pray for those that represent the different sectors that we will talk and work together in as cooperative, cooperative way as possible in order to get the best outcome for um, everybody. And what I want to do is now is just take a passage of scripture and just give you an example of how um, th this, this process of how the church, the Christian community and, and, uh, and government, how it relates, it, it goes right the way back to the very beginning. In fact, if you think about it, the crucifixion of Christ by a, a Roman imperial government was a political act, wasn't it? It was not just a, you know, a spiritual act. Was a, it, there was a political The passage is that we're going to look at is from uh, Acts chapter 24, and it's. I think as we read it, you'll just pick up where it's at because it's 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 Paul has been arrested because he's been he's been uh, accused of uh, of desecrating the temple, and uh, the Romans have the soldiers have had to go in and rescue him from being stoned and killed by ra you know angry uh, Jewish people, and uh, and they've done that and they've rescued him. Uh, and uh, and now they've got to find out the truth, what really happened here, and that's where we fall into this passage. We drop in as there's a kind of a you know kind of court case going on, and it says here that five days later, Ananias the high priest arrived, um, and they left from Jer this is, this is happening in Caesarea down on the coast of of Israel, and it's happening by the way, it's happening around about 57 A.D. And that's a critical date, and we'll I hope I'll remind myself to come back to that, but that's when it's happening, because Paul has been doing his missionary journeys, he's done that big collection, he's come back to give that collection to the, to the, the Christian community to distribute to the poor and to help people in need, because things have been very difficult there in Judea. And and he's up at the temple. He's been caught, you know. He's, he's been accused of this uh, of bringing Gentiles into the temple area, and and they're they're about to stone him for doing such a terrible thing like that. He hadn't, in fact, Roman. He wasn't causing any. And the, the and they'd rescued him from it, and uh, held him in in custody for a while. And here they are about to have this talk. So five days later, they've moved him down to. They've moved him down to Caesarea, and he's in the prison there, in the uh, in the governor's uh, property, and um, 
and says here the high priest and uh, arrived with some of the Jewish uh, elders and uh, a lawyer is a a Roman lawyer called uh, Tertullus whom they hired to represent their case uh, against Paul to the governor and when Paul saw uh, was called in Tertullus presented the charges against Paul in the following address to the governor so he's presenting the charges your excellency he says you have provided a long period of peace for us Jews and with foresight have enacted reforms for us uh, for all of this, we are very grateful to you, but uh, I don't want to bore you, so please give me your attention for only a moment. We have found this man to be a troublemaker who is constantly stirring up riots among the Jews all over the world. He's a ringleader of the cult known as the Nazarenes. Now, the term the Nazarenes, do you remember um, in that passage where um Jesus' disciples are coming together and the and uh, Philip says, did anything good ever come from Nazareth? You know, wherever Nazareth is in our culture, uh, you know, some sort of, there's one in Sydney and there's one in the Brisbane area as well, an area that's a bit rough and, you know, nothing good comes from there. So it's a bit of an insult really. So when they called them the Nazarenes, they were saying they were the Bogans, if you like. Not say Bogans. So he says uh, he's a, he was right as the Bogans. The temple, when he was arrested, when we arrested him, you can find out the truth of our accusation by examining him yourself. Then the other Jews chimed in, declaring that everything he said was true. So the governor then motioned for Paul to speak, and Paul said, I know, sir, that you have been a judge of Jewish affairs for many years, so I gladly present my defense before you. You can quickly discover that I arrived in Jerusalem no more than 12 days ago. So he's only been... He'd been there. He'd been five days down in Caesarea. He'd only been there a week. Um, um, and my purpose was to worship at the temple. And my accusers never found me arguing with anyone in the temple, nor stirring up a riot in any synagogue or on the streets of the city. These men cannot prove the things they accuse me of. So, in other words, sometimes troubles are interreligious or intra-religious inside a religious, religious community. The government has to deal with a conflict that's actually happening within a religious community. And sometimes they're dealing with a conflict that's happening between religious communities. And uh, they're not always, the tension's not always just between the, ch- the, the church and, and the government. And in this particular case, um, I- I you know, it was, it was something you'll see, as you could see there, that Christianity at this time was viewed as a cult or a sect of Judaism. And you could see that by the fact that there's they're still going to the temple. Um, and that's, that's 27 years after the resurrection of Christ. There's still a sense of connectedness to, to Judaism. And even though they are non-spreading the gospel of the Messiah to non-Jews, they are also very hard of, of, uh, of Judaism as well. Now... Um, But I admit that I follow the way, the sect, so-called sect, which they call a cult. I worship the God of our ancestors, and then he just goes through the fact of how similar they are, in fact. I worship the God of our ancestors, and I firmly believe the Jewish law and everything written in the prophets. So he sounds like an Orthodox Jew. I have the same hope in God that these men have, that he will raise both the righteous and the unrighteous. And because of this, I always try to maintain a clear conscience before God and all people. 
I want to focus on that phrase, I always try to maintain a clear conscience before God and all people. Maintaining a clear conscience. Uh, when Graham and I were talking about this before, this was one of the points that we just talked about, that when we get beyond all the complications of writing law and, 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 and trying to, to do the, the best thing for everybody in the law, one of the challenges is that we as, as sincere believers, we have to be able to do that process with a clear conscience. And, and if we're going to have that clear conscience, firstly, it doesn't mean a perfect conscience. It doesn't mean that we've never sinned. It doesn't mean that we have a view of ourselves as better than anybody else either. You know, it means that it, a clear conscience means that I'm conscious of the fact that I am not a perfect person and I know what to do when I've done something that, I that was wrong. God, you know, I let God talk to me about it. And this is the challenge about this sort of issue that very often we begin the process of working out how we put in legislation that, is, that works for the entire nation as well as the Christian community, we start off a little bit self-interested or maybe very self-interested that we're really just concerned about the fact that Christians need protection. You know. And then we start to think, oh, maybe we should be thinking about something that's fair for all. You know. and, and we start to put things down. We don't realise how prejudiced we are, how self-interested we are. And it's by doing processes like this that the conscience, our sense of what's right and wrong, goes through a transformation. That's part of the challenge. And the thing is, uh, until you go through situations like this, you we don't realise how narrow our conscience can be. So... In this situation, you can see that what Paul is not trying to do, he's not trying to bag the Jews in this. He's just simply seeking to state the facts and sort of say, please, let the truth speak. He says. After several years of work, I returned to Jerusalem with the money to aid my people and to offer sacrifices to God. And my patience to me in the temple, as I was graduating purification ceremonies, there was no crowd around, no rioting. Some Jews from should be bringing any charges if there is anything to be brought against me. Ask these men here what crime the Jewish high council found me guilty of, except for the one time when I shouted, I'm on trial here today because I believe in the resurrection of the dead. We'll have to leave that for now. But at that point, Felix, who was quite familiar with, with the way, and he'd heard about the Christian faith, uh, adjourned the hearing saying, wait till Lysias, that's the garrison commander, arrives, and, uh, and then I'll decide the case. And he ordered the officers to keep Paul in custody, but to give him some freedom and allow his friends to visit him uh, and to take care of his needs. Th th we're just going to talk about to give, uh, uh, give him some liberty. And that phrase, I'm resting it a little bit, but you what he's talking about here is, is the fact that Paul's a Roman citizen and he's recognising the fact that he has to treat him with due respect because he has rights as a citizen. And you and I have rights in the nation. The fact that we're Christians doesn't mean we have no rights. We have the same political, political and social rights as everybody else in the country, but we don't have more. Okay, We have the same, and we have to respect that sense of evenness and equality across the nation. So 
What that means here is that he gave him some liberty. He didn't give him some liberty, and that's how it works, actually, that liberty is a finite commodity in a society. And that, that gets shared among everybody. And what we have to try to do is give everybody as much liberty as possible. And that always means, to some degree, there's a bit of horse trading. Okay? That's the way it works. I we're going to read on here, just for brevity's sake. We get the discovery here that this particular governor was a, was a little bit of a rogue, and he was actually wanted he wanted um, Paul to bribe him a bit to get him out of prison, you know, and to let him go. And Paul wouldn't do that on a matter of conscience. He wouldn't do that, and as a result of which, he spent two years there. Now, this is the thing. During that two years, that seemed to be a frustration of God's purposes in his life. Luke, Paul was accompanied by Lent. Luke had two years, sir, which he spent that witnesses getting to know what had happened in the early history of the church and in the life of Jesus. He put together the material that wrote the Gospel of Luke and also the Book of Acts. Paul, on the other hand, wrote some very important letters during that time that have endured. 2,000 years. So even though it seemed like the purposes of God were frustrated in his life, they were in fact being turbocharged. Amazing. Now the fact is that in our culture and in our country we try very hard for governments not to be corrupt like that and looking for a backhander. What is more to be the case is rather than them taking a direct bribe, what they do is they try to say, look, if we're going to get this through in the parliament, it may mean that we have to do a bit of horse trading with the opposition to get to let them get something through. And that and that sort of stuff happens. Usually it's the minority parties that they do that with. And sometimes, you know, I've been conscious of the aware of the fact that the things have been pushed through and things have got through what we don't want but what we don't want religion legislation to be horse traded through and being at somebody else's expense we want a kind of a just outcome and that's why it's so important for us to be praying for those people who have to make those decisions uh, not just the government but praying for the whole process because they are under extreme pressure to try to get something that is just and fair for everybody. So in this thing we've seen, this, le- this example of Paul, we've seen that Paul is, con- is aware of his conscience and our conscience and how important it is that we learn not just be familiar with our conscience and just assume that it doesn't need change and development and you know our sense of what is right needs to be s- expanded and stretched. I've just got an example in this from, um, from Martin Luther. Um, Martin Luther was part of the Catholic community and thought of himself as a Catholic priest. You know, 
his uh, his views on um, uh, on justification by faith. He he sort of gets uh, gets the boot. But one of the things he says. Listen to Martin Luther when he talks about his conscience. This is when he's being tried as a heretic for believing in justification by faith and that we are not just saved by the by the 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 church's um, um, you know uh, baptism. He says, uh, "I was I was conquered by the scriptures, and my conscience is bound in the word of God. I cannot and will not recant anything." since it is in unsafe and dangerous to do anything against the conscience, the conscience that has been bound in by the word of God, that's been transformed and inf- informed by the scriptures. Here I stand, and I cannot do otherwise. God help me. Amen. And he sits down. The point was that he had come to a position that was guided and informed by the scriptures, and also, no doubt, by the whole business of tensions between him and the, the and Catholic hierarchy and all that sort of stuff. And he finally came to a position that on in terms of his sense of what is right and true. That doesn't come easily. Doesn't come easily. And that's what we pray that the church will come to. A just position. A position that will be good for all. And that we can stand with courage in. It's a challenge. Also, we learn that we understand that we are not to think about the kind of freedom we hope to be in total and without, you know, as large and broad as we like to say anything or to do ev- anything and everything that we want. There will be some confining in order that we don't do things and say things that are particularly offensive to other communities. That's a challenge for us because there are some things that we believe that are offensive. We're going to have to learn that process how we manage those things because our intention is not to offend our intention is that they might have the same grace that we have you know that intention we mustn't that intention we you know finally we see continuing to not so much assert his rights as seek to be working out his responsibilities to the world community and to god and that's our challenge this is my prayer for us, is that within us, when we became believers, part of the DNA of our faith was what we might call a missional or social responsibility. It was a responsibility beyond ourselves for the health and well-being of the communities about which we are a part and grace to make a difference, a positive difference in the world. That's part of our faith. Our faith is not self-interested. It's not about just us. It's about sufficient for others as well. The overflow, the abundance of grace. What the scripture says. Yeah. That's what, as we come to know, break bread together today. And I invite them to come. The as we come to break together today, I arts to God today. And to ask that, that that element of our faith, that faith seed, that DNA, that is, that is not troublemaker but peacemaker, that faith that brings life, not death, that faith that brings liberty, not bondage, 
that faith that makes society better, not worse. That faith that resolves tensions and conflicts, both in the community and in the family. Oh God, we pray that that will be released in us and in the whole church today, across the nation. We pray that we'll enter in as the nation, as the church in the nation, we'll enter in to our responsibilities in a fresh way with a fresh anointing for what good and right and best for the nation. Pray that you'll help us not to be so go through a regeneration through the word of God and that we'll become selfless as Christ is selfless. Oh, Spirit of God, Spirit of Christ, we need you so much to renew our sense of what is right and what is best for the nation as a whole, for your purposes in every life. We pray for those, Lord, who see us as enemies. We pray, Lord, that you'll help us. Help us. We can't imagine how we can reach out and reach into the lives of people that hate us and that think of us as so prejudiced and unjust. We pray for that kind of miracle. We've been singing it that day. Miracle worker. That's what we can pray for in our nation to deep. A reconciliation that is so special that it characterizes our King and His grace. We pray, O oh God, whatever the thing is that you've planted in each of us, may it flower and blossom and bear fruit in us today and in the days to come. That's our prayer as we take these symbols of Christ who made such a difference, who brought life and hope and healing and liberty, oh, and every grace. That's the spirit we've received, and we receive it as we take these symbols today. In Jesus' name.